number six of the Way, the Truth, and the Life Bible Study. Last week, uh, we looked at deliverance through the blood. The nation of Israel started when God, he changed Jacob's name to Israel, and the nation, it grew from uh, just a man to a family to an entire nation. And even though they settled in Egypt during a famine and became slaves for more than 400 years, God sent a deliverer named Moses. Now, Moses was called by the I am, the I am that I am. We looked at that in the last lesson from a a burning bush. And then God sent 10 plagues to the nation of Egypt. And he freed his people from Egyptian bondage. They would have never been freed from the nation of Egypt. And that represented sin. uh, If it wasn't for God taking the lives of the firstborn throughout the land, of anyone who did not have blood applied to their doorposts. Like that, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who shed his blood to take away the sin of the world so we also can be delivered from sin through the power of the blood. Again, if you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at refugechurchonline.com and we will do our best to answer whatever questions you may have. But before we jump into this sixth lesson, Please say a prayer with me as we look at the word of God. Jesus, thank you, God, so much for your word. And Lord, we just pray that you would please let it come to life in a powerful way in our own lives and situations. Lord, speak, Lord, to us, Father, so that we can see the things you want us to see and then help us to know how to apply those things to our lives because we're not just studying for historical purposes, but we want to be led by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So tonight we're looking at the New Testament pattern in the Old Testament. Now the last thing we discussed was when God took the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt, Pharaoh finally says, enough. That was the 10th plague, and he's done. He says, Moses, take the Israelites and get out of here. You're, leave. And so we see in Exodus 12, 41, it came to pass at the end of 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So in the minds of the Israelites, they're like, hey, we're done now. We're, we're leaving a land of sin, going to our land of promise that God had said he was going to give Abraham and all of his descendants. They were probably anticipating no more problems, no more issues. We're walking away from our past and we're never going to face it again. Well, Pharaoh quickly realizes that he just let go of all of his slave labor. He changes his mind and With 600 chosen chariots, Pharaoh chases the nation of Israel that he just left or let go on foot. He starts chasing them. And look at Exodus 14, 9. It says, but the Egyptians pursued after them. All the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army overtook them encamping by the sea beside Pihahirath before Belzephon. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. They were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. They said to Moses, what, because there were no graves? You brought us out here to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt with us, thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? Amazing here. They literally are saying... Why did you even come rescue us? Why did you get us out? At least we, we, back in Egypt, we said, leave us alone so we can serve the Egyptians. For it had been better for us to die serving the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. And so Moses says to the people, 
fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he sh will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, you shall see them no more again forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Now, if I'm the leader, I'm going, you know what, y'all, I got... You caught, you're, you're getting on me. I'm the one that came in and, and helped with God getting you out of here. And they're saying, what'd you, you, what, you brought us out here to die. You should have just left us alone. <laughs> but here they get to this point. You talk about being between a rock and a hard place. Here is Pharaoh's our Egyptian army coming up behind you. You got the Red Sea in front of you. And you're going, I, I'm, I'm, I'm dead. We got nowhere to go. Their army's behind. The Red Sea's in front. Certain death was imminent unless God was going to intervene. You know, sometimes in our lives, we try to walk away from our past. We try to get out of sin. And, uh, you know, it, it seems like we turn around and there it is again. But listen, God will fight for you. In this case, the Israelites, they, want, they just said, you know, re we'll return. Even though they were vicious taskmasters and, and, they, and, their, and they were made to serve with rigor, the Bible says, and hard labor, uh, Sometimes we would rather live in the bondage of sin, even though it keeps us in bondage. At least we know what to expect. It's a sad reality. Because why? When you go with God, it's a journey of faith. You don't know what's coming next. And so it requires a constant trust and faith and confidence in God. But Moses, he had his confidence in God. He says, listen, God's going to fight for us. So God tells Moses, have the people move forward. The only problem is uh, there's nowhere to go. I got the Egyptian army behind. I got the Red Sea in front. You're telling me to move forward. There's water. There's a whole body of water in front of me. So look what God does. Exodus 14, 21, Moses stretches out his hand over the sea. And the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided and the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon dry ground. That's awesome because guess what? When God changes a life and makes a way, he doesn't just change what's on the surface. He reaches under and changes what's underneath the surface. We'll see that in our salvation too. But their waters were a wall on the right and left. God literally parts the Red Sea. His people walk through not just on mud. He, they walk through on dry ground. Pharaoh's army pursues the Israelites, and they, and they pursue in after them into the Red Sea. In Exodus 14, 26, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its strength when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled against it. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. And look at these powerful words that wraps this passage up. It says, there remained not so much as one of them. God washed them all away. Remember for last time, we, in our last lesson, I told you how powerful the Bible is. Jesus, the disciples, the apostle Paul, and others would look back. And they would connect events in their life in the New Testament to the Old Testament. It's called typology, where, where Old Testament things referred to New Testament things in types and shadows. Uh, I'll explain this a little more. Look what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 6. He says, and I'm reading New Living here just for ease of understanding. He says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. He's writing about what we've been covering here. 
And he says, all of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. So Paul is acknowledging this story as historical fact. He says, in the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them. That rock was Christ. Notice what he says there. That rock, there is a rock in this story. But that rock was Christ. Paul is saying that's typological, that, that, that typology, that rock represents Christ. And we see in the New Testament, the Bible says that he's the stone that the builders rejected, and, and he's the chief cornerstone. So you see how the Old Testament and New Testament, they connect. And even though it doesn't say, hey, this rock represents Christ in the Old Testament, people that the New Testament believers, writers, Jesus, his apostles, they understood that. And so I don't want you to think I'm reaching by saying that, hey, these things in the Old Testament represent New Testament things, because they do. Look at verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10. It says, these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. So we can learn from their examples. They, they happened as a warning to us. So Paul's clearly connecting this. Throughout the New Testament also, water baptism was a part of God's plan. And it was a place where sin was washed away. We're going to look at that at a later lesson. In the Old Testament, water is mentioned over and over and over again as a place of cleaning, cleansing. The priests had to clean themselves regularly before animal sacrifice, after animal sacrifice. You're going to see that here too. So, but that water points to a place of washing and cleansing. Well, guess what? For us today, that's, that's called water baptism. And again, we'll cover water baptism here in the next few lessons. But remember now what the Bible says, specifically what happened that day when God's people went into the water. Scripture in, in Exodus 14, 28 says that the Israelites went in. Egypt, which represents a type of sin, a land of sin. God was calling them out of Egypt, out of sin, into a place of promise. But on their journey, they first had to go through the water. Just like when a believer today, you say, hey, God, I believe. I want to make it. I want to I want I want to see a change in my life. I am going to walk away from sin. And on my journey, it takes me through the water. Also, it's called water baptism. And we'll look at that. But notice when God's people go through the water, waters of baptism, Egypt, which is a type of sin, goes in with them. Kind of like today, when I go through the waters of baptism, my sin goes into that water with me. Just like Egypt went into the water with Israel. But by the time Israel came up out of the other side, the scripture says that the water washed away every one of them. It says there remained not so much as one of them. When we're baptized, every single sin is washed away. There remains not so much as one of them. And so what happens is, is God had already addressed, well, what happens if, if, Egypt, if the Egyptians pursue after Israel at a later date? Do you know that ancient Egyptian law stated that a firstborn son could actually reclaim a father's slave up to the next generation? That means a father could say, you know what, I'm going to let my slave go free. You're no longer in bondage. The son could come along 40 years later and could come along and say, you know what, I'm going to go get my dad's slave back. And they legally had a right to reclaim a slave. But you see what God did when God took them through the water. It wasn't just washing away their sins and, and, and their bondage right there at that moment. But guess what happened? Remember in our last lesson, before they left 
Egypt, the last plague was God taking all of the firstborn from the land of Egypt. So what was God doing? He was setting the stage that when I take you through the water, you're not just going to be free for the moment. I'm going to make it so that no sin, no person ever has a right to come back and stake a claim on your life and pull you back into bondage. And even the New Testament says, whom the Son sets free is truly free indeed. When God sets his people free from the bondage of sin, he washes away uh, all of the sins. There remains not so much as one of them, but we are free once and for all. So God had a beautiful, perfect plan here. And so, um, so what happens, though, is now they're, they're walking through. They come through the Red Sea, and let's go to the place of promise. It should have been an 11-day journey. But their disobedience, their fear, it caused it to turn into a 40-year time of wandering in the wilderness. Instead of 11 days, 40 years. But this 40-year time period, it was not a ridiculous waste of time. God used this time to prepare Israel for her promise and to also teach the children of God essential things. God calls Moses up on a mountain called Mount Sinai. And he gives them not only the Ten Commandments, that's what we celebrate and know a lot in society, but he also gives him the entire law of Moses. It's a lot more than Ten Commandments. It was actually, the law of Moses was 613 different commands. You think uh, your dad or your pastor or your church is strict. My goodness, think, 613 different commands. Things about what to eat and not to eat, what to wear and not to wear how to handle disputes and people who maybe break the law, when and how to worship, various times that you should offer sacrifice, and much, much more. 613 commands sounds extremely restricting, but think about it. Nation of Israel, they, they had been in bondage for 430 years. That is a long, long time. Egypt handled everything for them. Egypt fed them, protected them, provided for them. Israel had no idea what it was like to be a thriving, growing, safe nation. So God steps in and says, I'm going to give you guidelines. And possibly the most important guidelines that God gave them were how, when, where to worship. God called his people to set up a portable tabernacle and then pitch all of their tents facing the tabernacle, because again, typology, what was God saying here? It wasn't just, yeah, this is the best, I, I, I did the math, and based on the tribes of Israel, this is the best setup. No, it was, I want all of my people to pitch their tents facing me. I want, I want your lives to revolve around the, my spirit, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Uh, so God wanted his people to be, he wanted to dwell among his people. He always wanted that since the beginning of time. Now, the tabernacle that we're getting ready to look at here, it's incredibly important. We can learn quite a bit. Do you know the Bible spends about 50 chapters, 5050 chapters on the tabernacle? So obviously we can learn a lot because why? There's, there's a New Testament pattern in the story here in the Old Testament. God says, just like he did for Adam and Eve, hey, this is what I want you to do. Cain and Abel, this is what I want you to do. Noah, this is what I want you to do. Abraham, uh, the Egyptians, uh, the, the, the firstborn, the blood on the doorpost, he always had a plan. So now he says, hey, this is the way I want you to be saved. There's a salvation process here. Let me give you the exact plan. 
And so uh, when, but in doing this, when, when resources, because there's, there's millions of people here, when resources got depleted and they would stay in an area, God would say it's time to move to the next area. They didn't make that decision. The Bible says that they were literally led by a cloud and a pillar of fire. I mean, could you imagine? I wish sometimes God would just text my phone, give me a call, let me know what to do next. He literally, when their lives were centered around the tabernacle, there would be a pillar of fire when God's spirit was resting upon that place, in, in that place. And when it moved, God's people knew it's time to pack up the tabernacle, the tents, being all the people, and head to the next place that God was directing. God wanted, he always wanted his people to be spirit-led, led by his spirit. And so they would move to the next place, and, 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 and God said he guided them that way. When God called for them to build this tabernacle, just like everything else he did, he called for them to pay attention, to, to, to watch every specific detail. That is why the Lord spends more than 200 verses, 200 verses talking about the type of things to put in the tabernacle how to arrange everything, what the priests should wear, the plans for what needed to be built, the types of materials to use when building them. Things that if I was to read you all these, it would take several lessons and you'd get done and go, wow, that was interesting. I didn't need to know the length, the dimension, the type of wood, where to put the jewels, where to put the, where to put the grommets and the circles and how to, how, to, how to hang things. But you know what? God knew this is my plan and I want to make it detailed. He always had a specific plan. But the whole reason that God wanted Israel to build the tabernacle was because why? He was pursuing a relationship with his people. And that's what scripture says. It says in Exodus 25, 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That was his plan. God always wanted to be around and in, in, in and among his people. We'll see in the next few weeks in the New Testament that God still wants to dwell with or make tabernacle among his people. This was the first time in history that God had actually come to dwell among his people in this manner. As I mentioned in lesson one, some people think that the Bible is a, a, an account of human pursuit of God. But really, when you look at the word of God, the Bible is God's pursuit of humankind. Since he created Adam and Eve in the garden, God has longed for a relationship with his people. He's longed to, to commune with us. And that in itself is the, is the single greatest thing that separates him from other false gods in ancient Near East culture. That he pursued us and he still does. So look at the specific way that God said he would dwell with his people. Exodus 25, 21, he says, thou shalt put the mercy seat upon the ark. Now, we're not talking about Noah's ark here. This is the ark of the covenant. It's a piece of furniture in this tabernacle. And he says, in the ark, thou shalt put the testimony that I'll give thee. And there, meaning right there between the wings of the cherubim on that ark of the covenant, he says, in that place, I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. Between the two cherubims, which are just angels, which are upon the ark, and he says, I will, give the, I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So how, how can God, a God who is everywhere present, he's everywhere. How can he limit himself to this one place between the wings of the cherubim? How can he limit himself to that place? Well, just look on your screen right now. He said, I am going to commune between the wings right there. 
Now, first, you have to understand the fullness of God. He can be in one place, but still be everywhere present at the exact same time. It's known as the omnipresence of God. He can be in one place, but everywhere. He's, he's everywhere. That's why wherever you're watching this, wherever you're listening to this, you could pray. And wherever your other family and friends and, and old college buddies, I mean, wherever they are, God can pr- they can pray, and God hears them just like he hears you because he's everywhere present. And so it's interesting because in the New Testament, God also manifests himself in a different way while still remaining God everywhere else. And we're going to look at that in our next lesson. In the New Testament, he actually takes on a human body. We call him Jesus. So let's finish up by looking at this pattern, though, that he gives them. You look at, at this, this picture of the overview of the, the, the outside of the tabernacle. As you would approach the tabernacle, you will see on your screen there was a courtyard. There was only one way in, just like there's only one way into heaven. But as you entered that courtyard on that exterior portion, just inside that tent, you would come up to a, an, an altar of sacrifice. It was the very first piece of furniture. It was actually the biggest piece of furniture that you would encounter anywhere in this process of the tabernacle. As a matter of fact, you can actually, based on the dimensions given in the Bible, you can actually place every other piece of furniture in the tabernacle inside this ark. Everything else would fit inside. That's how large it was. And, and oftentimes people, you know, we want to skip past the altar and just go right into the presence of God. But living for God requires laying some things on the altar before you continue in your spiritual journey. And so, again, let that speak to you. What, what is maybe something that God wants you to lay on the altar? What's something that God might be asking you to say, hey, I want to give this to you, God. I want to walk away from that. I want to be done with this. We all have those things, but that was the first step. In typology, what does that mean for us? Well, that means that just like they would bring and they would kill an animal in that first step of the tabernacle and blood would be shed, there was a dying out. Well, we need to die out too. Well, we're not killing an animal anymore and we're not hurting ourselves, but what it is is saying, Lord, I'm laying myself on the altar. I want to repent of my sins Look at what Jesus says in Luke 13, 3. He says, I tell you, nay, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And just two verses later, he says the exact same thing. It's not very frequent that you're going to find Jesus literally repeat word for word what he just said. But here it's so important that he says it a second time. He says, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, you shall all likewise perish. So what does that mean? What happens if you don't repent? Well, if you believe the Bible, you're going to perish. I mean, that's the thing. We, it, it's, it's very clear. Well, the Bible's hard to understand. Not always. Look at this. If you don't repent, you will perish. So guess what? I want to repent. Well, what's repentance? Repentance is that 180-degree turnaround. I was going one way. I'm turning away. And we're going to talk about that a little bit in a later lesson. But re- I need to repent. I want to say, you know what? I, I, there needs to be a dying out to self, the selfishness that's in every one of us as human beings. Remember, remember, we already discussed the principle of bloodshed in Scripture. Hebrews 9.22 says almost all things are purged by, by the blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. And so that, again, typology, this is a pattern that God established in the Old Testament that follows us to the New Testament. The pattern remains the same. Blood needed to be shed, but the approach changes. There's no longer animal blood being shed. What happens? Well, for today, that, 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 that's the blood of the Christ on the cross. 
For those in the Old Testament, it was the blood offered in the sacrifice of innocent animals. If they skipped that, they skipped salvation. So before anything else could happen in the tabernacle, the, the, in that, imagine that Middle Eastern desert sun, an animal needed to be killed and that carcass needed to be placed on the altar and burned. It was the first step in, in their salvation. Imagine, though, Middle Eastern sun, animal carcass, Imagine what that would smell like. Yeah. Imagine what the priest would look like. The garments, the hands, after dealing with this, fighting this animal sacrifice, getting it up on the altar. Imagine the mess, the stench. So what would logically follow? How about a place of washing and cleansing? After repentance... That's followed by a place of washing and cleansing. Exodus 30, 18 says, Thou shalt make a laver of brass, his foot also of brass, to wash withal. So this is one of the pieces of the tabernacle that the dimensions are not given. But you can imagine, he says, there's a foot and there's a top. So it's probably a place where you could wash feet and hands. There's probably two components to it. And uh, he says, put the water there. And, and then he says in verse 19, Aaron and his sons will wash their hands and feet thereat. Verse 20, when they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. So what happens if the priest says, you know what, I'm going to rush today, I'm going to skip the water. The Lord says, repentance, you need, you need to repent or, like, or you're going to perish. Now we go the, the, to the next day, phase and it says, you need to wash or you're going to perish, that they die not. So the water was a place of cleansing. It was, just, it was just as important as anything else. They, If they skip that, they die. God demanded obedience to his plan, and he tells them right up front what to expect. Well, for us, we also need to be washed after repentance, after the dying out. The next phase is a place of washing and cleansing. What is that? That's water baptism. Acts twenty two sixteen. it says, Why tarriest thou? Arise. Be baptized and wash away thy sins, the sins that were on you. How, it's not just repent, it's have them washed away in the calling on the name of the Lord. So after Christ shed his blood to pay for sins, he lays out a clear expectation for his people to be baptized and now wash away the sins that he paid the price for. He paid a price but we still need to apply the blood to our lives, just like they did animal sacrifice before they left Egypt. They needed to apply the blood on the doorpost. It wasn't just enough the blood was shed. Jesus died on the cross, and he paid the price, but now we have to apply that blood. How do we do that? We take on his name in baptism. We're going to look all about baptism later, so I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's an exciting concept to see these things come together. So now you go into, you're in the outer courtyard of the tabernacle. If you see that picture on your screen again, the outer courtyard of the tabernacle, you came into the entrance. There was an altar of sacrifice, then there was a, braid, a, a labor of washing and cleansing. But now you enter the first part, the first part of that tent, the actual tabernacle, and it's called the holy place. And in that first section, there were three pieces of furniture. There was a golden candlestick, and this was the only light in the holy place. Now this, of course, this points to Jesus, who is the light of the world. And then the table of showbread was also in there. The, the showbread pro provided nourishment for the high priest and his sons. This also points to Jesus, because the whole entire Bible, 
is all about Jesus Christ. It's about God manifesting himself in flesh, the Savior that the world needed. And so things point to that. Jesus Christ is known as the bread of life. And lastly, there was an altar of incense in that holy place, which represents prayers going up to God from his saints. Matter of fact, last book of the Bible, Revelation 5.8, it says, When he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the land, having every one of them harps and golden vials of orders, which are the prayers of the saints. Notice, as the priests started a journey toward the presence of God, as they came into that tabernacle entrance and there was an altar there and a brazen labor, notice how it was hot and there was the stench and the dirt and the, it was just, it was kind of, a, kind of a mess. But as they got closer and closer to the presence of God, it started to look better, smell better. Everything started to get just a little bit more cleaned up. It's kind of the way our walk with God goes is, we might come to him and you say, man, you don't know what my, my life is a mess. I've got this. I've got that. It stinks and it looks bad. It smells bad. Everything's a mess. But as you grow in your walk with God, each step along the journey, things just start to look a little bit better. Because as we get closer to his presence, he takes us and he, he transforms us. And so... Now the priest would come up to this place. He's inside that first part of the tabernacle. But there was a veil that separated the back of the tent, which was called the holiest of holies, from the first part, which was called the holy place. And so the priest would only go into that second part, the holiest of holies, one time a year and not without blood. That's the part where God literally said, it is between the wings of that cherubim of the Ark of the Covenant that I will meet with you. I will commune with you. So when the high priest reached the veil, that high priest literally came to a part where there was just a covering between God and himself. It was just, a, just a, one veil, just a little covering separating from God and humanity. And so God was not accessible or available to all of humankind. Jewish tradition states that that veil was made of such finely twined linen that two teams of oxen pulling in opposite directions could not tear that veil apart. That's how strong the material is. God was saying, hey, there was, there's something there. Because think about it. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned way back in the beginning? The Bible says that two angels stood with flaming swords guarding the entrance to the place where perfection was there and humanity had just open interaction with God. But sin divided us. Sin divided God with humanity. And from that point on, we read the Bible, and it's God's pursuit of man, humankind and us and him bridging the gap of what sin divided. And so from that point on in Adam and Eve in the garden, God's presence was guarded. It was covered. It was guarded. It, you could not access it. So sin created that divide. Humankind could not just approach the throne of God. Relationship was not what it was originally intended to be. But then, then God manifests himself in flesh. He takes on humanity. And look what happens. Hebrews 10, 19, and 20. It says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. Now, this is the New Testament writing. Uh, it's pointing back to something in the Old Testament because it's all connected. 
and all the way back to the Old Testament, he says, hey, we now can have boldness. They didn't have probably boldness back then because uh, even tradition says that they would, the high priest would have uh, tied around their ankles bells so that if they went into the presence of God and their, and their blood and the animal sacrifice was not accepted from the sacrifice, they would be struck dead. And so the person, someone else would pull them by the, by the rope around their ankle with bells. If it stopped moving, if they stopped hearing it, they would pull them out. Now, that's not in Scripture, but that's Jewish tradition. And so it says, hey, you, the, now you can have boldness to come into the holiest place, the holiest. By how? By the blood of Jesus. That's the only way that we can have boldness to come into the presence of God. It is by the blood of Christ, by a new living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say, his flesh. So hold on here. Pay attention to this part. So scripturally, we have scripture that says that that Old Testament veil that separated the holiest of holies from the holy place, it represents the, the flesh of Jesus Christ. It was the covering between God and humanity. Well, we're going to see who is Jesus God manifests in flesh with a covering of flesh, a covering of skin. And check out what happened to the veil the day that Christ died on the cross. Jesus, Matthew 27, 50, it says, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. So he's on the cross. He just died. In verse 51, when he dies, behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain. That same veil that could not be torn in two by two teams of oxen. It was torn from top to bottom, Scripture says. It didn't just say a tear. Scripture lets us know it was torn from the top to the bottom, ripped open, torn apart, and the earth quaked and the rocks rent. When Jesus died, his flesh was torn open, and it seemed like a horrible, terrible day. But that cross was always the plan of God. He always had a plan for blood. But now he says, no more animal blood. Look at how specific the plan was that God laid out there. When you look back at the diagram on your screen right now, the tabernacle layout was that in the shape of a cross. So when God gives 200 verses describing what to do, how to build, how to set up the tabernacle, he knew that that Old Testament pattern was going to be the New Testament pattern. But instead of an animal sacrifice, it was going to be his own blood. And so, when, except for killing an animal and shedding blood in the altar of sacrifice, it was going to be his people repenting of their sins. Instead of a place of washing and cleansing to wash off the blood of the animal sacrifice, it's going to be a place of washing and cleansing and water baptism in Jesus' name. So as you proceed on, there was this Old Testament pattern that pointed to the New Testament. But the Lord knew that innocent animals would never completely take away sin. He knew, I need to pay the price for humanity so, so he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tear, tear that open, that veil, that covering, that divide. Even when the Lord called the tribes of Israel to surround his tabernacle, you look at the setup of how he did that. He had each of the tribes of Israel set up perfectly in the shape of a cross. It was always about the cross, the fact that he wanted to restore what sin had divided. So when he took on the sins and the guilt and the shame of humanity on the cross, that veil was split in two, top to bottom. It was 
That was more than just a nice story. It was the open door for relationship, communion, interaction with his people. He wanted to restore what sin separated. His flesh was torn and the, and the separation that divided God from humanity was now removed. And when he did that, that's what the cross did. It opened up the lines of communication for God and humanity once again. Now we don't have to work through an animal sacrifice, through the, the high priest and confess to a human being. Now we ourselves, in a way that they couldn't in the Old Testament, we ourselves can come right into the presence of God. Right now where you are, you can begin to whisper a prayer. You can begin to talk to God, and God is there. You are in the presence of God Almighty. That's what the, when he died and that veil was torn, but what the, the beautiful thing is, it wasn't just that we can come into his presence. It was showing us what? He came out unto us. He tore the veil to come out, and he longed to restore that relationship with humanity. And so, next week, we're going to look at who exactly was this man, Jesus Christ. Now that we've seen, hey, where we are right here, the Old Testament isn't just historical stories, facts, and figures. It, it points direct, these stories directly point to where you are, the relationship he wants with you, and the pattern that he established, knowing that the day would come, he would die on that cross to restore the relationship that he has always wanted to have with you. And so next, next time we get together, we're going to look at who was he? Was he part God, a co-equal God, a co-eternal God? Who was this person, Jesus Christ? And we're going to let scripture interpret itself.